Good morning. Uh, my name is Larry Hitchcock, and it's my pleasure to read God's Word to you today. The sermon today, uh, Godwin is preaching, is on 1 Samuel 20 and 21. The scripture reading this morning will be 1 Samuel 20, 1 through 24. Um, you can follow along on screen, or you will find it in the Black Bibles on page 251. Hear the word of the Lord. David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your fathers that he wants to take my life? Jonathan said to him, No, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything great or small without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This can't be true. But David said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor with you. He has said, Jonathan must not know of this, or else he will be grieved. David also swore, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So David told him, look, tomorrow is the new moon, and I am supposed to sit down and eat with the king. Instead, let me go and I'll hide in the countryside for the next two nights. If your father misses me at all, say David urgently requested my permission to go quickly to his hometown, Bethlehem, for an annual sacrifice there involving the whole clan. If he says good, then your servant is safe. But if he becomes angry, you will know he has evil intentions. Deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I have done anything wrong, then kill me yourself. Why take me to your father? No, Jonathan responded. If I ever find out my father has evil intentions against you, wouldn't I tell you about it? So David asked Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? He answered David, come on, let's go out to the countryside. So both of them went out to the countryside. By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will sound out my father by this time tomorrow or the next day. If I find out that he is favorable toward you, will I not send for you and tell you? If my father intends to bring evil on you, may God punish Jonathan and do so severely. If I do not tell you and send you away so you may leave safely. May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him more than he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. The following day, hurry down and go to the place where you hid on the day this incident began and stay beside the rock of Zell. I will shoot three arrows beside it as if I am aiming at a target. Then I will send a servant and say, go and find the arrows. Now, if I expressly say to the servant, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them, then come, because as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no problem. But if I say to this youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go 
for the Lord is sending you away. As for this matter you and I have spoken about, the Lord will be a witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the countryside. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Before we jump into 1 Samuel 20 and 21, I just wanted to say a few words. People have asked me, hey, what do you think about what's going on in Asbury and Cedarville and Lee and other places? Um, there appears to be this spiritual revival or awakening, and what is your response? So let me just give you three quick things that are on my mind that I would encourage you to consider as well. The first thing is that spiritual awakening and revival are entirely a work of God. People try to manufacture these sorts of revivals. In fact, there was the First Great Awakening, which was a work of the Lord. There was the Second Great Awakening where people like Charles Finney and others tried to manufacture, tried to create it and conjure it up. We cannot do that. It is entirely a work of the Lord. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is this. Let me encourage you to be cautious but not skeptical. To be cautious because we don't know, we cannot discern fully if it's a real work of God until, honestly, many years from now as we're really looking at the lasting fruits, whether it's there or it's not. But let me encourage you also not to be skeptical, and here's why. Because when God's Word is faithfully proclaimed, when the gospel is clear, when people are repenting of their sins, and like Drew prayed just a few minutes ago, when it's just the ordinary means, which is by all accounts what I'm hearing— then it perhaps is the work of the Lord. And the third thing I would say to you, or I'd encourage you as we're thinking about what's happening in Asbury and Lee and Cedarville and other places, is to pray. To pray, first of all, for what we're seeing to be real, for anything that is not of the Lord to be cast to the, to, to the side and discouraged and not encouraged. And then finally pray as Pastor Drew prayed. Pray for us. Pray that we would experience a sort of spiritual awakening and revival as God's word is faithfully preached, as we're called to repent as a church together. Pray for that. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for what appears to be something real, and it appears that you are working in a special, significant, kind of accelerated sort of fashion in these different campuses. And we pray, Father, that whatever is real would continue and, and would be encouraged and would advance, and that more and more men and women, women would be converted genuinely by your Spirit, and that more and more disciples of Jesus would grow in their faith, grow in their connection to you and their communion with you, as well as their love for one another. Father, would you do that work? Would you continue that work? And we do pray, Father, that you would do it amongst us. We pray for spiritual awakening. We pray for our, ourselves to be caught up, for, for you to rend the heavens and come down and visit your people here at Faith Church in an extraordinary way as we are simply obeying the ordinary things given to us, like gathering on a Sunday morning. Would you do that, Father, for your glory and for our good? Amen. Here's a question as we get started here. In your life, when have you felt most desperate? When have you felt most 
desperate. Now, we can all probably come up with a lot of stories, a lot of ways to answer that question. One of the times I feel most desperate is when I'm late for an appointment and then I run into a detour sign. Okay, so, oh man, that gets me. Like, why did the construction have to take place on this day? Like, why couldn't it take place tomorrow or next week? And I know that is a little bit silly, of course. Sometimes our desperate feelings come from our own missteps or our own kind of poor choices. Sometimes they come from a great injustice done to us. Some unfair mistreatment where God is holding up a detour sign and saying, hey, we're going to go now in this direction. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, this is unfair. This is unjust. Somebody take care of this for me. And all of a sudden, we're feeling desperate and uncertain and confused. I wonder, friends, whether you have been there before. David in 1 Samuel certainly has. He's seen a detour sign held up by God. He has been appointed as God's king, appointed and anointed by the prophet Samuel. But from that point on, things didn't get easier for him. They actually got more difficult. God ends up rejecting Israel's choice for a king. Saul, he was too much like the kings of the nations. So God raises up David in his place, a man after his own heart, a shepherd from Bethlehem, you know, the inconsequential shrimp of the family, the son of Jesse, you know, nobody essentially. But David is quickly catapulted into stardom when he rises up and slays Goliath and, and Saul sees David's popularity poles start to rise and he becomes twisted with jealousy. And in a sort of uh, demon-possessed madness, he plots to kill David, God's anointed. I want you to think with me about David's plight in these chapters. He's done nothing wrong and pretty much everything right. Now he's forced to flee, to become an exile in his own land, betrayed by the ones he came to save. Does this not sound like another shepherd king who would come from Bethlehem, who did nothing wrong and everything right, but would be rejected by the very people he came to save? You see, friends, David's life prepares us for the life of David's greater son, Jesus. So in today's story, as we're seeking to understand the story, we need to ask and answer the question, what do we see about David that then teaches us about Jesus. Here's the main point. You'll see it on your screen. God holds fast his people through his anointed king. God holds fast his people, we see here in 1 Samuel, through his anointed king, David, and as we're trying to think and apply about ourselves today, through his anointed king, Jesus. We're going to look at two very similar lessons. Here's the first one. The rejected one. The rejected one is our refuge. So we put our eyes on chapter 20. Now, after four murderous plots, we saw that in chapter 19. These plots were against David. He flees to Naoth in Ramah, and he unburdens his soul to Jonathan. We see that in those opening verses. He's essentially saying, listen, what have I done wrong? Why is your dad mad at me? And they confer together, and they hatch a plan to reveal Saul's intentions. We see that in verses 4 through 7. The New Moon Festival was evidently a very important festival with members of the royal court expected to attend. So David was expected to be at this festival. And so they decide that David should intentionally not show up. It's kind of a test for Saul. If Saul kind of accepts his absence, then well, I guess he's kind of cooled his heels and things are okay. But if Saul gets angry, well, then David is still in danger. And now, 
now, now they kind of need to figure out how Jonathan's going to get that word to David. And they hatch this kind of intricate plan with a complicated archery routine, right? And so if it's at a certain distance, David is fine. If it's kind of further out, then David's still in danger. Well, the new moon festival begins and David's place is empty. We start seeing this verses 24 and following. Saul initially thinks nothing of it. Oh, he's just unceremoniously uh, unclean. But after being absent for a second day, he starts to ask questions. And Jonathan says he's attending a family sacrifice. Well, Saul's response leaves no doubt. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. And then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Every day, Jesse's son lives on earth. You and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. Whew. All right. It's getting a little heated, right? And did you notice that he refers to David as the son of Jesse? That's intended to be an insult, a, a demeaning remark. He's the son of a nobody, in other words. And he even calls his own son, Jonathan, right? A son of a perverse and rebellious woman, which is ironic because he's the son of a perverse and rebellious man, right? Saul. Now, friends, this is a key moment in the story. In the past, Jonathan has mediated between Saul and David successfully, but it appears mediation is no longer possible. And so Jonathan must choose between Saul, his dad, and David. And Jonathan chooses, as we'll see here in just a moment, God's anointed David. Look with me at verses 32 and following. Jonathan answered his father back, why is he to be killed? What has he done? Then Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. There it is. Jonathan chooses uh, David and it gets him in trouble, doesn't it? His choice doesn't bring relief to the situation. It brings further grief. But he knew that there could be no further accommodation. And following this, verses 35 and following, the arrow gets shot at a distance which communicates, hey, David, you are still in danger. And then Jonathan and David, at the end of this chapter, they come together and they talk and they grieve together. They communicate their love for one another, and then they leave. Jonathan kind of exits the scene of 1 Samuel, and David's story continues to develop, and he continues to progress. Now, here's the thing I want to really point you towards. The heart of this chapter is found in verses 11 through 17. So put your eyes on verses 11 through 17. What is going on in this interaction between Jonathan and David? Well, first, notice Jonathan promises by the Lord to get word to David about his father. He basically makes this oath, which shows a great amount of loyalty and commitment to David. And so it's really Jonathan in these verses who is desperate. You know, our chapter begins with David under the threat from the house of Saul. But here, Jonathan recognizes that really it is the house of Saul, which is under the threat from David. He sees things as they truly are. God's will is that David will become king, and David will triumph over his enemies. Jonathan knows this. He trusts this. He believes this. And he asks to be spared when David eventually will be cleaning house. Friends, we have to understand that in Jonathan's desperation, he doesn't seek out security and comfort in the wrong places. He doesn't cast David aside so he would have an easier time with his dad. It would have saved him short-term pain. It would have been a safer option for sure. 
siding with the king of the nations over and against the Lord's anointed is always going to be easier to do, especially in the short term, right? Friends, how much easier is it for you and me to side with the ethics of this world, with the false love tolerance of this world, with various ideologies of this world? It would be the safer option, right? I mean, it would make our lives easier. We would have more friends. People would like us more. But Jonathan, I mean, he shows remarkable faith here, remarkable faith in God and in, in his anointed, even when it hurts him. I mean, he's got a spear hurled against him from his own dad. Imagine the sort of pain that he was experiencing. We often look at David and Jonathan's relationship as a model for friendship, but really it's a model of discipleship. Jonathan loves David as a brother, but most importantly, he recognizes him as God's king. When Jonathan gives him his robe and armor to David, this is chapter 18, he's taking off his right to the kingship and he's giving it to David. And yet here's the wonderful irony here. By giving up the future of his own house, Jonathan gains a future under the protection of David, doesn't he? Jonathan is not primarily teaching us about how to be a good friend. He's teaching us about how to be a good follower, a follower of Jesus. Friends, we too are to give up our pretend rights to the throne. We too are to acclaim David's greater son, Jesus, as God's king. We too are to bind our future to his, to give up control to him. Friends, is this the shape of your discipleship under the Lord Jesus? You became a Christian through self-renunciation, okay? Less of me, I'm, I'm not on the throne of my own life here. Man, I need to turn and face and repent of my sins and have faith in Jesus. I'm transferring authorities now from me to him. That's how you became a Christian. That's the work of conversion, the work of faith and repentance. But you continue in your discipleship with more self-renunciation alongside Jonathan. Do you remember Jesus' words that we recently studied in Mark? If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. So let me ask you this question, friend. How will you relate to the rejected one? Will you be more like Saul or will you be more like Jonathan? Will you cling to power like Saul? Do you want to make decisions and plans free from any interference? Are you determined to be in charge of your own life? Or will you be like Jonathan, graciously acknowledging the power of God's anointed king, giving away any claim to authority? Will you be loyal to King Jesus? Will you seek refuge in him? Will you entrust your future to him? Even though our society is increasingly secular, everybody still kind of loves Christmas, right? Nobody has a problem with baby Jesus. No one is afraid of baby Jesus, right? Jesus in the manger is safe because he, quiet, he kind of sits quietly in the corner of your life. But what about the risen king, Jesus? That's a whole other matter, right? I mean, everyone loves baby Jesus, but few serve the risen king, Jesus, today, right? If you want... God's anointed king, hear me now, if you want God's anointed king, Jesus, you must want all of him, all of him. If you claim to follow Jesus, you must follow all of his ways. What does that mean? That means this book right here, 
all of this book, not just most of it, not just some of it, not just when it's convenient to you and when it brings you trouble, then you start to skirt over here or compromise. Jesus wants your full allegiance, all of you, all the time. Jesus isn't a choose-your-own-streaming-service package, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and I'm going to cancel this part next month because I've gotten through my show. Jesus is Lord over all. Every sphere in this universe, every dimension of this universe, and every sphere and dimension of your own life. He's either Lord over all, or he's just a religious farce and historical anomaly. So friends, may we not fawn over baby Jesus with mere sentimentality, but bow low and adore him as our Savior and our King. Okay, so we've spent several minutes thinking about how Jonathan relates to David, God's anointed, and by analogy, how we relate to Jesus, okay? And that's good and right, but take a look with me now at verses 14 through 17 in this conversation that Jonathan and David are having. Starting in verse 14, if I continue to live, this is Jonathan speaking towards John, uh, David, if I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord hold David's enemies accountable and Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So yes, Jonathan shows incredible allegiance towards David, but look at what he's asking here in these verses. That word for kindness, you see it in verses 14 and verses 15. It's the Hebrew word, maybe you've heard it before, hesed. It occurs 250 times in the Old Testament. It means steadfast love or kindness. In the Bible that I've used, kind of grown up in the last 20 25 years, it says, loving kindness. And it conveys a sort of covenantal language and tone here, which is made even more clear, notice, by verse 16. This whole thing doesn't hang on how committed Jonathan is towards David. It hangs on how committed David is towards the good of Jonathan. How does the Bible spell security? You know? Here's my dad joke for the day. How does the Bible spell security? C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T, covenant. Covenant for Jonathan means security for Jonathan. Yes, the covenant demands are costly, and they're going to cost him his own commitment and a sort of uncommon faithfulness. I mean, he's lost his dad. He's almost gotten killed, right? But at the very bottom of this covenant isn't Jonathan's faithfulness. It's David's faithfulness. Jonathan's safety and security depended on David providing faithful love and kindness to him. Jonathan's plea for Hesed is not just a kind of plea for personal kindness. It's another acknowledgement that the kingdom is being transferred to David. It's a demonstration that Jonathan had faith in David and in the God of David. And David would do for Jonathan what he asked. His household would be protected. So you kind of fast forward into 2 Samuel, you see that. Okay, friends, so where do we experience Hesed, God's loving kindness? Where do we experience Hesed? Maybe from another person in our life, our spouse or a lifelong friend? Well, maybe like in doses, certainly imperfectly at best. But we know the answer to this question. There's only one place where 
God's people experience hesed, right? Only one person who offers hesed in its pure and undefiled form, and that's Jesus, David's greater son. Like David, Jesus too would be persecuted. He was hunted and plotted against and rejected and hated. And yet it's under the banner of Jesus, under the banner of the rejected one, where we receive safety and sanctuary and a future, right? And friends, this promise isn't just kind of line 3B in God's contract with repentant humanity. Let's like, okay, here it is. It says hesed. It's actually part of the very nature of God himself. When God is declaring who he is to the people of Israel back in Exodus after he saved them, in Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 6, the first thing he says to his newly formed people is that I am rich in hesed. If God has committed himself to you, child of God, then you have nothing to fear because he is rich in hesed towards you. It's not a small little reservoir that you can tap into now and then for your crisis, your problems. Now and then when you, you know, hit that detour sign, there is a large reservoir of hesed that God wants to give to you. God's loyalty, his affection towards you isn't dependent on your spiritual performance or your religious zeal or your perfect track record. Jonathan loved God. He loved David, but he was not perfectly faithful. We know that because he's a mere man. And so what this means is that God is our only recourse when we face injustices and dangers and that detour sign. So friends, how will you react when that happens? When you you know, when God holds up that detour sign, when you're facing perhaps an injustice, something unfair, how will you react? The truth that keeps you and I secure and steady is that you can live within the safe confines of the new covenant. Blood was shed for you. The Spirit of God has been sealed in you as a down payment. Eternal life has been purchased for you. There's a place being prepared by our anointed King Jesus for you. The work that has begun in you and for you, God will finish. And friends, this truth should make all the difference. Should make all the difference for tomorrow and next week. So that's the first thing that we see here in chapter 20 is that the rejected one is our refuge. Let's turn our attention to chapter 21, where we see the one on the run is our refuge. The one on the run is our refuge. So what happens next in the story? Well, it turns out that David will never again be welcomed back to court. His life is now in danger. He's on the run. And notice in these opening verses, David escapes to Nob, where he meets up with Ahimelech, the priest. Let's read together verses 1 through 5. David fled from Nioeth in Ramah and came to Jonathan. Whoops, wrong chapter. Flip the page. David went to the priest Ahimelech at Nob. Ahimelech was afraid to meet David. So he said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? David answered the priest of Ahimelech, the king gave me a mission, but he told me, don't let anyone, uh, don't let anyone know anything about the mission I'm sending you on or what I've ordered you to do. I have stationed my young men at a certain place. Now, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest told him, there is no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is uh, there is a consecrated bread, but the young men may eat it only if they have kept themselves from women. 
David answered him, I swear that women are being kept from us as always when I go into battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission so that, of course, their bodies are consecrated today. So first, David essentially lies about why he's there. He says, hey, you know, the the boss sent me on an errand, right? Probably trying to protect Ahimelech from any reprisals. And then David asked for bread. He and his men are hungry. That makes sense. They're on the run and hiding and moving quickly, running from place to place and likely running low on rations. So they need sustenance. And the priest has bread. But notice it's consecrated bread. It's been set aside for the priests to eat. But Ahimelech will make an exception if David and his men have kept themselves from women. Now, this is according to the Levitical laws, though they're applied, interestingly, only to the priests. You may remember Jesus refers to this very incident and clears both David and Ahimelech from any wrongdoing. This is from Mark chapter 2. Now, the Old Testament includes case law, showing how the spirit of the law applies in kind of various situations. And sometimes keeping the spirit of the law involves breaking the letter of the law. We see that in the Old Testament records. Now, this is a far cry from any sort of situational ethics or relativism because the spirit of the law remains sovereign. But there's a larger point I want you to see. I don't want you to miss this. Ahimelech would not have given this bread to just any old hungry Israelite that walks in, okay? He gave it to David because David is God's anointed In Mark chapter 2, this is how Jesus understands and applies this story. He says, the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, Jesus wasn't arguing about the interpretation of the law. He's claiming to be the new David. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, when God anointed Saul as king, one of the signs was that three men would come to Bethel and offer Saul bread. And when Saul was anointed by Samuel, he attended this huge feast where he received the priestly portion of the sacrifice. So what do we have here in front of us? Well, here it's David who receives the priestly bread. Friends, this is a ordination-like moment. This is a coronation moment. Even the priests of God are recognizing his kingship, even though David is on the run and in trouble. The one on the run from Bethlehem is still quietly and subtly acknowledged as king much like some shepherds from the fields and wise men from the east before a manger in Bethlehem centuries later. Friends, do you have eyes to see? (laughs) Do you have eyes to see how David prepares us for Jesus? There's a a pattern being laid down here, a, a sort of messianic mold, which Jesus a few centuries later would kind of fill out. I mean, wasn't it Jesus who said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, the son of man has no place to lay his head? And like David, Jesus flew in under the radar as he came to earth, and he did nothing wrong. And as a child, he had a bounty on his head from another paranoid king. He was forced to move from place to place. He was forced to take refuge in foreign lands. I mean, the similarities are striking. Didn't Jesus, too, live on the margins like David? He's from a no-name town, traveling with no-name disciples. He lived on the run. He suffered greatly. He died alone as a traitor to Rome and Israel. And yet, here's the cool thing. In the Gospels, now and then, here and there, we get to see these little peaks, these little glimpses, little glimpses into Jesus' kingly identity. We see it at his baptism. We see it at his transfiguration as the Father, the other Father himself declares, this is my beloved Son. 
Listen to him. We see it as Jesus is teaching, as he's healing, performing miracles, as he's forgiving sins. We see Jesus' identity in the midst of him running, in the midst of him being persecuted, in the midst of him being misunderstood and misrepresented. We see his kingship, his, his glory unveiled in these glimpses. Even though our Messiah was on the run, still now and then we come to see him as he truly is, God's anointed king. David prepares us for the kind of sufferings and glories that would fall upon Jesus. So friends, here we are in the 21st century, and, and I would say a, a part of our discipleship is simply to see and savor and treasure King Jesus more and more and more. That's part of our discipleship. And, and what these chapters invite us to do is to do exactly that. The David's story encourages us to think about, okay, there's a messianic mold created here as we see this, this incredible King David. And we see kind of patterns unfolding and, and being unveiled in David's life. And as we look at David, we can't help but look at Jesus. David's story continues with him needing some weaponry. Let's look at verses 8 and following of chapter 21. David said to Ahimelech, do you have a spear or sword on hand? I didn't even bring my sword or my weapons since the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want to take it for yourself, then take it, for there isn't another one here. There's none like it, David said. Give it to me. David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to King Achish of Gath. But Achish's servant said to him, isn't this David the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see this man is crazy, Achish said to his servants. Why do you bring him to me? Do I have such a short shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? That's great, right? Oh, yeah, love it. Love how this chapter ends. You know, it's stories like this that remind us that we are thousands of years separated, uh, you know, from what we're reading. And David takes this sword. It's the sword of Goliath, and he flees to Goliath's hometown. Why would he do that? That's a little strange. I mean, imagine this man with his ragtag posse of men strutting through a Philistine city with Goliath's sword hanging around his waist. I mean, he's running into a meat grinder, essentially, right? I mean, this seems very unwise. But this illustrates the utter desperate situation he finds himself in. He is so down and out that he has no place in his own country to put his head down. What can he do? He's got to find sanctuary somewhere, right? And apparently David's number one hit has made the waves uh, in, in Gath. You know, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. wonder whether someone's put that to music. Achish's servants even describe David as the king of the land. Did you notice that? And so David, naturally, he's afraid because he's been recognized. And so to protect himself, he pretends to be insane in their presence. Literally, it says in their hands. So he is in their custody. And he scribbles nonsense graffiti on their doors and he, you know, lets drool run down the beard, right? I love how Akish responds again in verses 14 and 15. He's like, listen, I've got enough crazies here. Like, you need to move along. 
kind of makes you wonder what life was like in Gath, right? (laughs) Now, friends, here's what's great about this episode. It turns out David reflects on this incident in two Psalms, in Psalm 34, which we read earlier in the service, as well as Psalm 56. Now, I want you to turn to Psalm 56. So go over to your right just a little bit, and you'll hit Psalm 56. We're going to look at this uh, briefly. Psalm 56. And so here we get to see what is in David's mind and heart through these Psalms as he was in Gath. So here's David. He's confused. He's foolish. He's desperate. But he doesn't grasp after false narratives or empty promises held out by the world. He doesn't wallow in kind of negative thinking. He doesn't just kind of run away thinking, gosh, I guess I got lucky. He says, God is for me. He might be desperate, but he also responds with faith, as we'll see. So what is in David's heart? Well, let's see what's in his heart. Verses 1 through 4. Be gracious to me, God, for a man is trampling me. He fights and oppresses me all day long. Now, who's that? That's Saul. Verse 2. My adversaries trample me all day, for many arrogantly fight against me. He's probably talking about the Philistines and Gath. Verse 3. How does he respond? When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And so he turns to God, friends, right? He acknowledges his problems. He acknowledges his ultimate trust in the Lord and and, and trust in him over his fear of man. But he also laments to God. He starts to describe the pain of rejection and the sadness of his exile. Look at verses 5 and 6. They twist my words all day long. All their thoughts against me are evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps while they wait to take my life. I just love his utter honesty and transparency here before the Lord. Friends, do you and I pray like this? I hope we can all learn to pray like David, especially when we're desperate, especially when we're facing and experiencing injustice in our lives. So how's David going to get through this? Well, ultimately, as you see here, it's not pretending you're crazy or achish silliness that gets David out of his trouble. Ultimately, it is the Lord. God would be his refuge. That's what this psalm is all about. And that would mean, by the way, not only that David was protected by God and escaped achish, I want you to look at verses 7 and 8. These are key verses in this psalm. Uh, Pastor Colin Smith, he's a pastor up in Chicago, he's helped me to understand these verses I want to share with you, some of the things I've been learning here. Verse 7 says, my heart, uh, wrong psalm. (laughs) Verse 7 says, will they escape in spite of such sin? God, bring down the nations in wrath. You yourself have recorded my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Friends, God being David's refuge also means that God will punish David's enemies. Do you see that? Verse 7. That's the thing about these painful detours in our lives, right? Sometimes it's an indication that we've been wronged. Someone has done something against us, and it leaves deep scars on our hearts. But God being our refuge doesn't only mean that he will protect us and help us to keep going. It also means that every human evil will be punished, either on the cross or in hell. Look again at verse 8 carefully. David has wandered. He has suffered. His suffering is undeserved. But then, friends, do you notice that he sees a bottle and he sees 
a book. Friends, human evil is known to God, every bit of it. It's recorded in his book. We see that here in verse 8. We see it in Revelation chapter 20 as well. God never forgets. We may have forgotten a half a million slaughtered in three months in Rwanda. This is in the mid-90s, half of whom were children. Not one forgotten by God. The world has moved on from the 1.6 million slaughtered in Cambodia in the mid-70s. Not one forgotten by God, fully known by him. What about the 6 million Jewish men, not including uh, women and children, exterminated in the 30s and 40s? Or the 25 million purged in Russia under Stalin's regime? And that's less than half the total number of abortions since 1973 in the U.S., 56 million lives. Friends, do we know their names? Can we see their faces? No. But all of them are known by God. Not one lost. The Bible tells us that God has a book and a bottle. Psalm 56, notice it says, He gathers the tears of his anointed one of David, but also those who align with David, his people in this bottle. And so every act of atrocity or cruelty or unjust violence, whether it's small or big, done to God's church is known to God, as is the full effect of agony that comes as a result. Every infraction, small or big. How many of us have clenched our phones as we've heard bad news? Maybe it's the news of miscarriage, or some scandal, some abuse? How many of us have something hidden in our souls right now? Some injustice done to us or a loved one? Some hidden atrocity, some vicious cycle that has worn down our souls? What about the persecuted church down through the ages and even right now in the 21st century as we put our eyes upon Iran and North Korea or Papua New Guinea? Friends, what do we do with all of this? Where do we take all of this? God has a book and he has a bottle. His memory and his attention to detail do not change like our modern media. His evaluation of all those crimes doesn't shift based on political platforms. Listen, friends, there is no spin with God. He sees it as it is. God has the accurate record of all things in his book. And one day he will open that book and he will empty that bottle and he will sort through it all and he will deal with it all. Every sin, every crime, every secret exposed, revealed. The church of God persecuted down through the ages, exposed. How this must have comforted David as he was on the run, as he was persecuted as he had spears flinging up against him, as his best friend is getting persecuted, as he's enduring shame and scorn from his own people. Friends, what does this mean for you and for me? We can pray for healing from our wounds. We can seek the appropriate justice on earth. We can do what we can under God's laws in the courts of this land. But the wounds may never fully heal. And here on earth, the justice may never fully come. And yet, like David, we can count on this future day. We can take comfort in God's future judgment. 
Friends, it's a very Christian thing to long for the day of judgment. At first glance, that may sound harsh or unloving, but wouldn't we actually be callous and insensitive and horribly unloving if we actually denied justice to Cambodia and Rwanda and the Jews and the unborn and the persecuted church down through the ages? If we dig down into every emotion that gets poured out on social media, whether you agree with the position or not, it all stems from a desire for justice, right? We are hardwired to long for justice. The question is, will we trust God to do it? David's refuge in this desperate situation is God. And that's not some flimsy religious platitude. It has teeth to it. It is based not only in God protecting God's anointed and those who follow him in the present. It also means that God will vindicate his anointed and his people in the future. I mean, I want you to think about Jesus for just a second here. Centuries later, after this incident, how he would find refuge in God when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane as one by one everybody abandoned Jesus, starting with the scribes, the religious elite of the day, the Pharisees, also the crowds, and even his own disciples. As he cried out to God, take this cup from me. Friends, he asked God the Father three times to take this cup from me. And three times he heard silence. How many times would David pray as we see in the Psalms for rescue, for vindication, for help, for comfort, and sometimes God would be silent. But Jesus would go to the cross. His vindication would come as his father raised him up from the dead, bringing victory and triumph over his enemies. And God will bring even more vindication to Jesus at the end of this age as Jesus comes with a sword to judge the nations. And listen, friends, here's the Here's the big takeaway for, for us. All who have covenanted with Jesus will be vindicated with Jesus in the end. He will make all things new and he will make all things right. And so when we sing, he will hold me fast, we're about to sing that in just a few minutes here. We're not only declaring together that God will protect us today and tomorrow and next month, we are declaring together that God will protect and vindicate us, the church, far into the future. As he opens up the books and pours out the bottle and demonstrates his righteous judgment on behalf of the people of God, who he has covenanted with since before the foundations of the world. God will finish everything he started. He will hold his people fast today, tomorrow, and into the next stage through his anointed Jesus. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to reflect on these passages and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.